Now, I was just given this as a birthday present. And any of you who have attended our Gita classes know what's coming. But I'll, I've, I've never tried this, so we'll just see. reason we do that is uh, in the Gita it's more obvious what that is in the very very beginning at the beginning of the battle actually it's before the battle starts because uh, Arjuna and Krishna go out between the two sides representing our downward pulling energy and our upward moving energy and the two sides begin to make a lot of noises. And the side of our upward moving energy, the Pandavas, blow their conches. And each conch has its own separate name. But the symbolism of that is that each of the Pandavas are representative of one of the chakras. And each of our chakras internally has its own sound. And that sound, when we begin to go into deep meditation, the sound of that chakra blows as symbolically represented as a conch, the sound of a conch. And the sound of that chakra uh, pulls us deeper and deeper within. And the body and the senses have their noises too. And so they respond by clanging bells and symbols and banging drums and that represents the body and the senses coming awake and trying to pull us outward away from deep meditation and so all of life is this balance between the inward and upward pulling energy and the downward and outward pulling energy and those two uh, battle each other continually and we as the devotee with the help of the guru, are in the middle of that battle. But before it begins, we observe the two sides. We observe before we go into meditation, our life outwardly and those things that we are drawn to, attracted to, our desires, all of that, which pulls us into the world of duality. And ultimately, for the heart of the devotee, that duality represents a downward pull and a pull from our own deepest true desires. I was very, very touched by the songs this morning. Both of them are really among my favorite. If you don't know the 
story of the second song, Dark Eyes. Master, as you know from the autobiography of a yogi, lost his mother when he was relatively young. He was just a, an adolescent at the time, or pre-adolescent. And it was a deep blow to his heart because his mother was not only very dear to him as all mothers are, but she really was his first spiritual teacher, his first guru, and she helped him with his spiritual life. And he missed terribly her presence and especially the love that was shown to him through the eyes of, the eyes are the windows of the soul. And they don't change much from lifetime to lifetime. And those beautiful dark eyes of his mother would beam such love and such joy and wisdom and comforting to him. And he missed them terribly. And then one time in meditation, he was feeling this longing and he saw a vision of Divine Mother. And she said, don't feel sad. I have come to you in the form of many, many mothers. I've come to you in the form of the mother in this life, but in the mother in every one of your previous lives, it has been me who has come to you. And then he saw this vision of thousands and thousands of pairs of loving eyes of Divine Mother fulfilling that longing in his heart. That really is God's drama to us, is that we have this deep, deep longing in our hearts. We have the longing for love. We have the longing for joy. We have the longing for all of the good qualities and sometimes the outer life, the someone in our life, the circumstances of our life fulfill those and sometimes they don't. And we keep searching and searching and searching for fulfillment, which ultimately cannot be found outwardly, only inwardly. I want to touch just a bit on that to uh, help us understand the broader context. Swami on Monday mentioned the term Sanatana Dharma, the eternal religion or eternal righteousness. What that represents, as he described it, is the basic understanding that can't differ on any other planet in the whole universe, that everything extends out from God and ultimately, everything must be drawn back into God. Because that, it doesn't, you know, we see the alien movies and uh, alien creatures with the tentacles and non-carbon life forms, as the uh, directors like to call them. But all of that doesn't matter. It's just different forms, different um, plays of the same thing. I mean... Master used to take his devotees into the movie theater and during the middle of the movie he would tap them on the shoulder and point up because they would be engrossed in the drama, in the movie, in the characters, in everything going on. He would point up 
to the beam of light coming from the projection booth. And he would say, don't you see, it's all just a play of light and dark. And that's the essence of Sanatana Dharma, that the outward projection of creation, no matter on what galaxy, on what planet, no matter anywhere in creation, is a projection outward from the consciousness of the one creator. And as that projection of consciousness goes out, it has to, in order to produce the drama of creation, it has to bifurcate into duality. If the projection booth shone only white light and the screen was only light, what kind of movie would there be? If the projection booth were somehow obscured and it didn't show light, what kind of movie would it be? There has to be light and dark in order for them there to be the appearance of outward reality. It's all still coming from the same light. It's all still coming from the same consciousness. But that uh, duality of light and dark um, is what gives the appearance of reality to creation. So there are kind of three aspects that uh, to simplify the whole of the Vedas and the whole of Indian philosophy very simply um, because we get into complexities and that complexity, the tendency of the mind to form complexities, in that process we often lose the reality. So the essence of Vedanta is to describe the creator. There's a beautiful, um, it's in Whispers from Eternity, it's a prayer demand, but it's a, a repetition of one of the deep prayers of the Vedas. Vedas are the writings of uh, ancient India that describe the nature of God. Vedanta means that which comes out of the Vedas. And this prayer I often repeat it when I'm walking or I also like to jog, when I'm out in the woods and moving. And it says, I see thee before me and behind me. I see thee to the left and to the right. I see thee above me and beneath me, on the inside and the outside. I see thee everywhere, for thou art everywhere. Beautiful poem. and. The repetition of that, uh, keeping that in your mind, I would highly recommend it, especially when you're moving through, um, through some area where it makes it easier to forget that reality that everything is God. This brings you back to that reality. One time I was with Swamiji and very early on, probably 1969 or 70, and we, he needed to go to an appointment in kind of the seedier district of uh, North Beach district of San Francisco where they have the bars and the nightclubs and so on. And as we were walking, there were three or four of us, and as we were walking, he was just quietly chanting, Shri Ram Jai Ram. J.J. Ramon. 
And he just kept chanting that. And it was as if it put a bubble of protective presence of God around us. And we just walked through that district that was kind of trying to draw uh, poor people into even more delusion. And they were eagerly running after it, um, trying to draw them away from their center. It was as if that put a protection around us. So all outward nature in the, in the scriptures, they call it sukadukadam. I always love that. Just the very sound of that, sukadukadam, means the world of pleasure and pain. And so this duality of creation has to, by its nature, have both light and dark. Our lives are bound always by the very nature of creation to be a world of pleasure and pain. And we try to hold on to the pleasure or the happiness or ultimately as it gets more refined to the joy, but outwardly we cannot. It is impossible. And so the wave crests and then it crashes and it goes into the trough. And then it comes rising again, cresting again, crashing again. And our lives are one long continual movement of cresting and crashing, sukadukadam. We cannot hold on to any state because life is constantly changing. And so these two aspects, they're really Vedanta and Shankya philosophy. They work together. The nature of the creator, the nature of his creation. And then there's a third one, and that's really the one that we need to concentrate on today, which is yoga. And yoga answers the question of when you want to get out of the world of Sukha Dukkha Dham, how do you do it? In fact, the very, very first statement in Patanjali is, and now we come to the study of the science of yoga. That end now means that you have played for millions, perhaps billions of lives. You've been surfing around in Sukha Dukha Dham. And sometimes you've enjoyed it, and sometimes you have ended up with a crashing wave and broken limbs and Sometimes you've seen your friends win the contest and sometimes you've seen them die over and over. Finally, as Master says, it gets to be a sense of anguishing monotony. Anguishing monotony. Remember how Swami talked about how desperate he was before he found the path? That desperation of the soul comes on us and we just we have to find something better than this changing world. And then some pair of these millions of dark eyes come out of the mists and they come to us and they look at us. And for many of us, the pair 
excuse me, I have a little hair. The pair that looked at us were the eyes of the autobiography of a yogi, as they did for Swamiji. So the guru, remember, it's all a play of God. Everything is a play of God. But when the devotee begins to yearn for the end game, to be out of this, then God comes in the form of the guru. And the guru is, we're a form of God. The guru is a form of God. The path is an aspect of God. It's all God. But it's all a play, a dance. When this particular form of God wants to merge with our greater form of selfhood, then the guru comes to show us the way out. It's an intriguing drama, and it's all a drama of love and joy. And as Master said, the whole world has been created for our education and entertainment. He said, but ah, uh, how few are either educated or entertained. <laughs> and so when we're tired of the entertainment and ready to get the final degree in the education, then the guru comes. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I had a lucid dream. I don't know if any of you have had lucid dreams, but they're very, very interesting because you can see the dream as if a movie, but you're aware of the fact that you're watching your dream. So you're awake and dreaming at the same time. And in a movie, some other director has control. In a lucid dream, you have some control, but not total control. If you do too much, it breaks the bubble of the dream and you wake up. If you do too little, it's just like a normal dream. But in a lucid dream, you have some directorial control over it. So during my freshman year in college, I was a little lonely. It was the first time I'd been away from home and away from all the friends that I'd grown up with. So in this dream, I was in like a big country store, old-fashioned country store, and there was something sort of like a barn dance uh, going on. And so one by one, I brought the friends that I was missing in and either had them dance or I danced with them in order to have that contact. And it was quite enjoyable because I was awake and watching it and playing with it at the same time. Well, we're the sleeping dreamer and the guru is the lucid dreamer. And he comes into our dream and he plays with us because it is, here's where the whole dream analogy breaks down. When you have a dream, it's all of one substance. But in God's dream, it's much more permanent, lasting. But also, the individual parts have free will or sort of free will within that dream. They have this much free will. They have the free will to want to wake up or not to want to wake up. That's the extent of free will that we have. But when, as an individual part of God's dream, we want to wake up, then God sends in a lucid dreamer into our life and he helps us. And so the guru comes and the 
Guru comes with several things that are very, very important. The title of this morning's talk formally is The Power of the Guru to Change Us. And so the Guru comes with much more than just concepts, just teachings. Concepts and teachings we get, in fact, before we get to the point of having a guru. As we progress spiritually, we're drawn to try to become more aware. And as we begin to express that desire for more awareness, we begin to become interested in things that, that will help us. And there's a, a great interest in the world, in America in particular, in self-help materials so that we know that we want something more than what we have. We're looking for some resources that will help us find something more. And so we look into the self-help materials. The problem with self-help is it includes the self. <laughs> that which has gotten you into the mess is not capable of getting you out of the mess. Or as Einstein put it, problems are not solvable on the level of consciousness at which they were created. That's a good mind twister to think around a little bit. So if you think you can think your way out of a problem, you're in uh, deep trouble. <laughs> because the, the very mind that created and the habit patterns and the emotional patterns that create that miasma can't also draw you out of it. So the guru comes after we have finished with kind of the self-help level of trying to get through it. And I'm not saying that there aren't some wonderful books. They just don't give solutions. They give inspiration. And so read them for their inspiration. They're good cheerleaders and they'll help motivate you, but they won't in and of themselves solve the problem. In order to do that, we need some aspect that is clearer, wiser, more magnetic, and more powerful than us. Do we need a guru? Well, Swami was asked that question by a reporter in India. And so the reporter said, do we need a guru? And Swami said, no, we don't need a guru. Why would you want somebody coming into your life telling you what to do? You don't need a guru. Unless, of course, you want to find God. <laughs> then you need a guru. Because the labyrinthian ways of creation in and of themselves are difficult enough. But it's much worse than that. It's that we have practiced certain kinds of delusion and gotten very good at it. We've practiced wanting to be famous or wanting to be attractive or wanting to be wealthy or wanting to be revengeful or wanting to... And there are thousands and thousands of things that we can want to be. And over the long period of time, we've practiced those. And the tendency is that when we want to get out, we run those same programs again very like trying to get out of a prison with thick concrete walls, 
by running harder into the wall. And it just doesn't work. We need somebody to show us where the door is. And so the guru comes. But the guru comes with a whole lot more than just the knowledge. The guru comes with tremendous power of love. And that's really the secret of God, is that the guru represents God's love to us in the particular form that we're resonating with and ready to accept. Master said in that beautiful, beautiful poem, and Swami created, uh, uh, mentioned it on Monday too, that I will return again and again a trillion times if need be, so long as there is one stray brother left crying by the wayside. Imagine that. Imagine that kind of a promise to, and the guru, we have to understand, while he has to come clothed with a form, a body, and a personality, he is not that form, that body, that personality. He is an expression of God's love, and that's really all that he is. Other aspects, too, wisdom, joy, peace, all those, but essentially, he is an expression of the love of Divine Mother, who is the aspect of God that produces the creation, the love of the Divine Mother to draw her yearning disciple back into herself. So one pair out of those thousands and thousands of dark eyes will come to us because we're particularly open to and resonate with a particular kind of teacher or teaching and guru. Ultimately, Master said that each of us have a particular guru whose job it is, an extension of God whose job it is to bring us back to awareness, self-realization. And it's only through the touch of that guru, only through the, uh, one might say, channel of that guru, that we can finally wind our way out. It's as if coming back to the prison again, there's a long, circuitous maze that we have to go through in order to get out. And it's one particular <coughs> guru, because we've each created our own maze, our own particular set of delusions and the guru being above the consciousness beyond sees our own particular patterns and respects them. Master said that when he came to Sri Yukteswar, Sri Yukteswar was an avatar of wisdom, a gyan avatar, and very austere. Master, one time Swami said uh, that when he looked at Sri Yukteswar's eyes, he saw a lot of love there. Master kind of said, huh, there was no love in those eyes. <laughs> he was saying it, you know, I mean, it, this was the interplay between a guru and his disciple. But he was saying that Sri Yukteswar did not vibrate on the wavelength of love. He vibrated on the wavelength of wisdom 
and kind of stern correction. He only had a few people in his ashram because people couldn't stay under that blazing fire very long. They couldn't stay with Master for very long, and Master was a prem avatar, an avatar of wisdom, I mean, of love. Swami said that Mount Washington was like a hotel with people checking in and checking out, come in. You know, we have this kind of fantasy, oh, if only I'd been with Master, it would have been so wonderful and everything would have been so fine and easy and he'd have taken care of everything. And uh, What he said was the reason God doesn't come to people is most of them just want to argue with him when, when he does come. So when, when we're ready, when we're ready to give God our unconditional love, which is the first thing that Master asked of Swami. Most of us, like Swami, are kind of pretty much ready for that. But it's the next one that gets us. Will you give me my your unconditional obedience? And that, like Swami, we begin, oh, now wait a minute, wait a minute here. I'm not so sure about that one. See, God has given us freedom of will and we've used that freedom of will for a long long time and we're not so sure about giving that up and until we are master said Jesus Christ could appear manifest to you and he won't change you unless it's your will to be changed so until we've been pummeled and beaten and bored to death enough times so that we're ready <clears throat> to say maybe running with my own self-will is not the way to go. Remember that brick wall that we keep running into? Maybe, maybe that's not the smart thing to do. Maybe I need to follow somebody and we have to be ready to do that before a true guru will come. When Master came to... Um, Dr. Lewis, he asked these same questions. And Dr. Lewis said later, uh, when he said to Dr. Lewis, and Dr. Lewis said back, yes, I give you my unconditional love and I give you my unconditional obedience. He said, Master rubbed his hands like this, said, now I can take charge of your life. But he, he cannot take charge of our life until we get to the point at which we're ready to offer our life into his hands. Once we do that, the path essentially becomes very simple. Take away all the frou-frous and uh, complexities of the mind. The path is very, very simple. It becomes ever increasingly deeper surrender to the guru. And that's the whole of the path when you have once accepted a guru. But it comes on very deep and increasingly subtle levels. So master might say to you, don't have any more moods. Are you ready not to have any more moods? Even if you're intellectually ready not to have any more moods, are you moodily ready not to have any more <laughs> moods? Are you emotionally ready? Have you freed 
the heart, the heart's energy from attachments and desires. What are moods? Moods are simply desires that have become frustrated. So if you have a desire and that desire is frustrated, you have a mood. First, it's frustration. If you allow frustration to grow, it becomes anger. If you allow anger to grow, it becomes kind of an obsessive thing. And we've got races, our nations, that'll have revenge back and forth for thousands and thousands of years because those moods have grown into a national temperament. But we, too, I mean, don't blame them. We've got the same problem. So we have to work on non-attachment. Non-attachment allows us, and we have to keep, it isn't vague. It isn't kind of, oh, I'll be non-attached. We have to do it in the cold light of day. The minutes are more important than the hours, Master said. So at night, Swami has given us this teaching most of us have known it for decades that at night we should build a bonfire or see our heart as a glowing globe and throw into that bonfire everything that we're attached to. Everything. Good, bad, personality, likes, dislikes. Toss it all in. And try, especially at night before you go to bed, Try then to go into the state of sleep with no attachments and no desires, completely self-offered into God's light. And as we do that, the attachments don't reside up in our head. They reside in our deep spine. They reside as what's called in Sanskrit as vrittis, whirlpools. We can think of them like the spine being a hard disk and their tiny little magnetic programs that reside in there. And so you can't get rid of a program on the hard disk by shutting down the computer. It's still there. You power it up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, and by golly, those glitches are still residing on your hard drive. You have to get in and you have to magnetically offer that up. That's why Kriya Master said Kriya was the most uh, powerful path, the greatest path through self-effort ever given to mankind because Kriya specifically works with the energies in the spine and it releases those vrittis, those seeds of likes and dislikes that form into samskars or tendencies and habit patterns that we bring with us from life to life. So we clean out, we ream out with every Kriya. We clean out those programs that keep us from God. But more and more, what our job is, is complete, absolute, total self-offering into the light of the Guru or the light of God, the way that God has come to us. The reason that it can't be anything less than that is that anything less than that represents a desire for separation. If you have something that you won't surrender to the guru or 
have an, uh, a thought or an idea or something that you want to hold on to, that represents the desire to remain in separation. And as long as you want it, you get to play it out. That's, that's what the game is. Remember, God doesn't need our love. Not only does he already have our love, he already is us who isn't loving him or pretending not to love him. As Ananda Mori Ma said, it is and it is not. And it neither is nor is it not. So <laughs> you kind of try to wrap your brain around that and it, it's like a Zen koan. It eventually leads you to the conclusion that it ain't what you see that the reality is. It's something very, very different. The reality is Sanatana Dharma. We have come out from God. We are a part of God. We have never, ever, ever been anything else than a part of God, an aspect of God. And we have played for however long we have played because first there's the outgoing momentum, but then we take it up. I'll talk here about our lives as human beings. We take it up with our self-will wanting to continue the play of separation, the play of Sukha Dukkha Dham. But it's always been God in the form of you, unique. Swami said, every one of us is unique. Every atom is dowered with individuality. The creation is incredibly complex as you get into the complexity and incredibly simple when you get away from the complexity. It's all just an expression of joy and love and play. But as Master said, how few are entertained or educated in the process. So that relationship between the guru and the disciple is one of ever-increasing uh, power. Uh, well, put it this way, ever-increasing desire on the part of the disciple to come back to God. And because of that, it represents ever-opening sense of concha of mind and heart so that the guru's power can flow ever more completely. And Swami has encapsulated this so beautifully in the vows for the pilgrims and the uh, brahmacharis, tyagis, and the uh, final vows of renunciation for the uh, Naya Swamis. But in each of those vows, it starts out with him saying <clears throat> in one form or another that the purpose of life is to seek God. That's, remember the Sanatana Dharma, you go out, the whole purpose of creation is an extension out and then individual, willful, self-seeking back toward unity. So the, as it says in the uh, Naya Swami vows of complete renunciation, from now on, I embrace as the only purpose of my life, the search for God. It's so beautiful 
so simply stated and yet so powerful that that's what the spiritual path is. And then there's, I think my favorite line of all in there is, at least currently my favorite line, I no longer exist as a separate entity, but offer my life unreservedly into the great ocean of awareness. I no longer exist as a separate entity. That's what we're trying to get to. Does that mean that we no longer exist? Absolutely not. We can never not exist. It means we no longer exist as a separate entity playing in the ocean of Sukaduka Dam and getting tossed around. We cease that separation, the desire for separation, the desire for what it is, is the ego. The ego is that aspect of the soul wanting to stay in a body, personality, and separation. The soul is like the individual part of God, but the individual part, well, the soul is the lucid dreamer. And so the but when the lucid dreamer wants to go to sleep and play the part of, I don't know what you call it, an unlucid dreamer, um, play the part of just a dream character, that's the ego. As long as we're caught in that kind of miasma, we can't wake up. But the ego, the surrendering, not of the existence so it's not, I no longer want to exist. We cannot have the desire to no longer want to exist because existence is one of the primal natures of God. Existence, consciousness, bliss. Ever, ever ongoing existence. And as part of that, we are ever existing. But we do not have to be ever existing thinking that we're separate from the whole. The whole path of yoga, the whole relationship with the guru is one in which he brings us back to the understanding that we are one with, the, with everything that is. I'll end just with this very little story, but one of the most profound stories of all from the uh, Mahabharata, which is the great epic from which the uh, Bhagavad Gita is taken. But in the Mahabharata, as I said earlier, it's the story of the war between our dark side and our light side, the Pandavas representing our spiritual yearning and qualities, the Kuravas representing our material desires. And the two chief protagonists are Arjuna, who was master in a former life, and a character called Duryodhana, master interpreted his name to be King Material Desire. And he has a hundred brothers, all representing different material desires. Arjuna has four brothers representing, he's one of the chakras, the other chakras. At any rate, Duryodhana and Arjuna um, know that war is inevitable. And so 
Krishna, who is the king of a nearby kingdom, but he also represents the guru or God in incarnate, incarnate form. Um, they both want his help in the battle. And so they both go to where he is. And Duryodhana arrives just slightly earlier, just a minute or two before Arjuna does. But Krishna is asleep and they don't want to wake him. It's all a play, I'll explain it. Krishna is asleep, they don't want to wake him. And so Duryodhana goes and he sits right by Krishna's head, impatiently waiting for him to wake up. And Arjuna comes and he kneels at the foot of the bed, waiting for Krishna. And Krishna, who of course is awake all the time, but pretending to be asleep, opens his eyes and he sees, because Arjuna is at the foot of the bed, he sees Arjuna. And then he looks and he sees Duryodhana and he says, well, why are you here? And they both want him to fight on their side. And he said, well, um, I'm in a dilemma here. Duryodhana, you arrived first. I owe you the first choice. But on the other hand, I saw Arjuna first. So I think I should give him first choice. I can't be give either one of you everything. So I'll tell you what I'll do. For one of you, I will give you all my war elephants, all my armies, all my soldiers, all my captains, all my weapons, everything that I have in my army. For the other one, I will be your charioteer, but I won't take part in the battle at all. I won't fight on your side. And he said, Arjuna, I saw you first. I'm going to give you first choice. Well, this naturally drives Duryodhana crazy because he wants all those war elephants and the other goodies. And Arjuna says, and this to me is the most powerful line, almost that I have certainly of the Mahabharata for me, but one of the most powerful lines in all spiritual teachings. Arjuna says, Krishna, I choose you. Because where you are, victory is assured. When we choose the Guru and forget everything else, victory is assured. I've known them forever, they've haunted my slumber and called to me out of the deeps of space. The love that they promised has helped me remember another time a caring Silence, they whisper comfort.
Yet keep 